I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Philippians chapters 1 through 4. First of all, let me tell you about the book of Philippians. Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison, probably during the Roman imprisonment we see in Acts chapter 28, verse 30. He talks specifically about this imprisonment in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, which we'll look at in a few moments. That would put the date of the letter at 59 to 61 A.D. Philippi was far away from Jerusalem, over a thousand miles by boat up in Macedonia. The church at Philippi was founded in 50 A.D. in the course of Paul's second missionary journey, which we see in Acts chapter 16. In chapter 1, first 11 verses, we see that Paul seems to have really liked these people. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making request with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ." And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. Now compared to the other churches to whom Paul wrote letters, his greeting here seems more affectionate toward these people as we look over the first five verses of this epistle. He had established this church some ten or so years earlier, and that was while he was on his second missionary journey recorded in Acts chapter 16, verses 12 through 40. Timothy's name is in the greeting, not because he helped Paul write the letter, but rather that he was traveling with Paul at the time of the writing. Timothy was well known as a leader to the Philippians. His reference to fellowship in the gospel in verse 5 may very well be twofold the kindness and hospitality they'd shown toward Paul, along with their continual financial support, which he mentions in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Though still in the process of greeting, Paul makes a significant doctrinal point in verse 6 as he verifies the continuing work of grace in their lives, not only for their salvation, where he says, begun a good work, but for the long haul through the strength of the Holy Spirit in their lives. That work continues until the day of Jesus Christ, he says. That's a term mentioned again in verse 10, which is discussed a little bit later. Paul again expresses his love for them in verses 7 and 8. The King James Version term bowels in verse 8 comes from a Greek noun 
which literally refers to intestines, but it was also used figuratively during that period to convey intense compassion for another person. In verses 9 through 11, Paul shares with the Philippians the prayer that he prays for them, and here it is. Verse 9, that their love may abound in knowledge and judgment. In verse 10, that they will continue to strive for excellence. Also in verse 10, that they will remain sincere and blameless. And then verse 11, that they will continue to display the fruits of righteousness. In writing to these Philippians, Paul uses a term. That term is day of Christ, and that deserves some explanation. Let's take a look at some references to that. In verse 6, he says, "...being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ." Then in verse 10, he said, "...that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ." Then we'll look at it in a few moments, but down in chapter 2, verse 16, he says this, "...holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain." Like many who've studied before me, I once attempted to fix a hard and fast rule on the usage of the terms day of Jesus, day of Christ, day of God, day of the Lord. And after countless hours of comparison over a period of years, it seems that there's no hard and fast rules on the usage of the term. The context must be considered in each instance in the New Testament where those terms are used. As a matter of fact, sometimes the word day the Greek word hemera, is sometimes used to describe a literal 24-hour period, and sometimes it's just used to describe the daylight portion. But then again, sometimes it's figuratively used to describe a period of time. Now, we use a term like that. You know, sometimes you'll hear the old-timers say, well, back in my day, things were different. Are they talking about a 24-hour period of time? No, they're talking about the old days. So, Paul uses the term the same way sometimes as do the other writers of the New and Old Testament. Now, let me give you a few events that may be referenced by the term day of that are found in the New Testament. Could be the rapture, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 53, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. Could be the rapture that it's talking about. Or that reference may be talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation. Acts chapter 2 verse 20 is a good place to look and see the notes there regarding the use of the term in that context. Maybe could be talking about the end of the millennium. That's when a new heaven and a new earth are created. Peter discusses that over in Second Peter chapter 3 verses 10 through 13. Or sometimes the day of could be referring to the entire period of the tribulation. Look at Second Thessalonians 2 for more information in that respect. So what's meant when Paul uses the term to these Philippians here? Well, in all three references in chapter 1, verse 6, and verse 10, and then chapter 2, verse 16, in all three references, Paul is obviously making reference to the end of labors for believers in his day and ours here on earth. Therefore, those references clearly identify the rapture for believers. In verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1, Paul discusses his stay in prison. Verse 12, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. 
so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Well, right here, I just have to say, what a trooper. Paul acknowledges that his imprisonment in Rome is necessary for the advancement of the gospel. Paul was being availed with opportunities for spreading the gospel that just wouldn't have been possible otherwise. He remarks that this includes the palace, the Greek word praetorian, along with other places. Moreover, others have been emboldened to preach upon Paul's imprisonment as well, some with correct motivations and some without. Whatever their motivation, though, Paul says in verse 18, What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. The Greek word for pretense there is prophesis, which literally means false motive. Isn't it interesting that Paul is pleased that Christ is preached, even by those whose motivation for doing so is really not what it should be? Understand, he's not talking about false doctrine here. He's just talking about their motivation for preaching. And as long as the message is true. Then we see the rejoicing in prison in Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 26. Verse 19, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet while I shall choose, I will not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you." And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Now, the salvation of verse 19 is used in the context of physical salvation, not spiritual. He's talking about physical deliverance from prison and from a potential death sentence. He's determined to be just as bold in the face of death as he is in life. I particularly like Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, which says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul says it's just all about Christ. His life is all about Christ. So, living, dying, it's all good to him. However, he expresses in verse 24 that the Philippians will benefit more if his life is spared, even though his personal preference in verse 23 is to go ahead and be with Christ in death. However, he concludes that his personal feelings about the issues are that God will allow his life to be spared this time. He anticipates seeing the Philippians once again in verses 25 and 26. So was Paul able to go back to Philippi and minister after the writing of this letter? Well, here's an excerpt from the Expositor's Bible commentary on this very issue. They write, 
Evidence from the pastoral epistles, confirmed by considerable early historical testimony, indicates that Paul was released from this first Roman imprisonment and had opportunity for travel, including a trip through Macedonia and presumably Philippi before being imprisoned once again and suffering a martyr's death. In chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, Paul talks about testimony. Verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Paul emphasizes here that his desire for them is that they remain strong in Christ with or without his presence. Notice Philippians 1.27, it says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That Greek phrase there uses the Greek imperative verb form of the word polituomai. He also uses the Greek word for worthy, which is axios. Add to that the imperative, a command, and the phrase worthy the gospel of Jesus Christ. And well, you get the sense. Paul is insisting upon a lifestyle that is worthy. Now let's reword the phrase like this. Only let you live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Contrary to what many would have you believe, what people observe about our lifestyle does in fact matter. And what about those people who oppose your life in Christ? Verse 28. Well, that opposition is simply a verification of their impending destruction or perdition. And your salvation, by the way. And notice verse 29. A little suffering? Well, no big deal. It goes with the territory. As we said in verse 29, just as it is with Paul in verse 30. In chapter 2, Paul begins by talking about emulating Christ. Verse 1, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These verses show us the attributes of Christ, and they challenge us to emulate those attributes. Verses 1 and 2 make this point. If your comfort is from Christ, which he's not questioning, then be unified. There's that term uh, for bowels again. In the Greek, it's a word which uh, means your um, innermost part and your compassion. 
It was used figuratively during that period to convey intense compassion for another person. That's in verse 8 of chapter 1, where we first saw that. How does that look on the outside? Well, there's your answer in verses 3 and 4, selflessness. Verses 1 through 4 encourage us to work as a team with other believers. All of us are working toward the same goal. Who cares where the credit goes? It was for the good of the body of believers that Jesus Christ made his sacrifice, and that's seen in verses 5 through 11. These verses are actually worth memorizing. They demonstrate to us that Christ is worthy to be worshipped, and one day everyone will declare that he is Lord. Incidentally, these attributes of Christ are given to us here to support Paul's admonition of verses 3 and 4. Literally, don't get caught up in your own self-interest at the exclusion of the interest of others, just like Christ. In the study of Christ, these verses are of utmost importance, though Paul gives them almost incidentally in making a point about Christian lifestyle. In other words, these seven verses, verses 5 through 11, have heavy Christological implications, and here they are. First, we see that Jesus Christ was, in God's form, equal to God in verse 6. Then we see, in verse 7, the King James says, "...but made himself of no reputation." It's just three words in the Greek, and those three words are, "...he emptied himself." The Greek word for, it's a verb, for emptied there is kanao, and the noun form of that is kanos, fostering a theological term commonly called the kenosis. That's a reference to the emptying of himself that Christ did when he came to earth for our salvation. That emptying, by the way, made Christ no less deity, but we see in this verse that he did, in fact, take on human form. Then we see that in verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. The suffering of the Messiah was a theological cornerstone of the Old Testament, and that's found in Isaiah chapter 53. And then it says in verse 9, God also hath highly exalted him, in verse 9. That's just one Greek verb translated highly exalted. And that uh, word is hyperopsao, which means hyper-exalted. It literally means exalted to the highest level possible. That hyper-exalted name is, by the way, Jesus, which we see in verse 9. All will, at some point in time, worship Jesus. That's in verses 10 and 11. The wording of these verses is meant to emphasize the all-inclusive acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. And that means by all people everywhere. Even those who rejected Jesus Christ here on earth, one day will be forced to acknowledge him, and that will be at the white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then we see the importance of a positive testimony in verses 12 through 18. Verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye sign as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy, 
and rejoice with me. Now, here's a verse that's been taken out of context by biblical novices. That's Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, which says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice the context. Paul's talking to saved people, saved people to whom he's already ministered, but may not be able to personally minister in their presence again. He's telling these people that the details of positive Christian living before the world is something that they must work out on their own. This verse has nothing to do whatsoever with mixing works with salvation by faith. The work out in this verse is the Greek verb katergazomai, and it simply implies to be about the business of performing works that reflect salvation. Paul then uses an expression which is used by him in several other contexts in his writings, where he says, with fear and trembling. That's an expression in Greek which is meant to convey extreme importance used by Paul also in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, and 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, as well as Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, and those are all in various contexts. In verse 13, Paul says that God works in us for his good pleasure. Now, with that thought in mind, he notes that it's not just the big things, but the little things as well that accentuate a positive testimony for Christ. Verse 14 shows us that being a perpetual malcontent is sometimes just as damaging to one's testimony as major acts of rebellion. Make no mistake about it, verses 14 and 15 are lifestyle verses. Believers should strive to be above reproach in their public testimony. Paul calls in a marker in verse 16 when he challenges those Philippians to share the word of life, meaning the gospel, to share it with others just as he had done with them. We are to be lights in this world, not cast a shadow with our presence when we enter a room. The day of Christ here is to be understood as the rapture of believers. Paul refers to his own potential death sentence as a sacrifice in verses 17 and 18. And to Paul, that's a sacrifice that will have been gladly given on behalf of these Philippians. For their receipt of the gospel message from Paul, they also rejoice. In verses 19 through 30, Paul commends a couple of good messengers. Verse 19, But I trust in the Lord to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him that, as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel." Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because that she had heard that he'd been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I send him therefore the more carefully, that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. Paul expresses a desire here to be able to have someone minister to them like himself. 
but none is available to do so. Nonetheless, he expresses his desire to send Timothy later and Epaphroditus soon to minister among them. He commends Timothy for being like-minded with himself in verse 20. That's a characteristic which Paul found rare in verse 21, he says. We see in verse 25 that it apparently was Epaphroditus who had brought word from the Philippian church to Paul and perhaps a little cash while he was at it. In chapter 3, we see that only one thing counts, and that's faith in Christ. Verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead." Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul begins chapter 3 here by declaring that he's going to do a, a review of some very important warnings that he'd given to them before, probably when he was with them personally. Mentioning it again is no problem for Paul, and the, it's the safe thing to do for their sake. That warning to the people in Philippi is in verse 2, where he says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. No, that's not a little dog, that's a metaphoric dog. Metaphoric dog bites are the worst kind, by the way. Do a word search on dog in the Bible, and you'll see that dogs had a really, really bad reputation. They're the most referred to in the context of being scavengers. Paul's warning them to watch out for the spiritual scavengers. He also uses an extreme term when he says, beware of the concision. The Greek word used there is katatome, which means self-mutilators. He's addressing those people who had mixed Judaistic circumcision with grace as a component of salvation. By calling them self-mutilators, he's obviously completely discounting the role of circumcision in the salvation experience. No wonder the Jewish leaders hated him. Incidentally, you'll notice that uh, this was the very accusation leveled against him back in Acts chapter 21, verse 21. Verse 3 sums it up with regard to the sadistic practice of requiring new believers to be circumcised when Paul says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. In other words, physical circumcision has nothing whatsoever to do with one's relationship with God. 
Spiritual circumcision is accomplished when one receives Christ as Savior. Then he wants his readers to understand that he himself has been through all of those Judaistic practices as he goes about and lists his credentials in verses 4 through 6. Now take a look at Paul's impressive set of Jewish credentials. In verse 4, he says, My credentials are a little bit hard to match. Verse 5, He was richly circumcised as a naturally born Jew. Verse 5 also, He could trace his lineage back to Benjamin. Also in verse 5, He was a member of the prestigious Pharisees. Verse 6, He passionately proved his zeal by persecuting believers before his salvation. Christians were initially sanctioned by the Roman Empire as a sect of Judaism. It was for that reason that the Jewish leaders felt it was their prerogative to punish these Jewish deviants called Christians. When Nero became the emperor of Rome, Christians were then targeted directly by the government. And then also in verse 6, he says he was blameless with regard to his practice of keeping the law of Moses. So what about these uh, impressive Jewish credentials? Well, verses 7 and 8, he answers that question. They were of no gain for the cause of Christ. As a matter of fact, none of his accomplishments were significant in light of the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Only Christ is important. Everything else is garbage, which is called dung in the King James Version. Upon winning Christ, verse 8, Paul explains that one's righteousness does not rest upon personal accomplishments, verse 9, but strictly upon the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, verse 10 sounds important, but perhaps may seem a little cryptic. Let's break it down into parts. Paul's itemizing his personal experience with Christ when he says this, that I may know him, the Greek phrase simply says to know him, and then he goes on, and the power of his resurrection. It's the power of his resurrection that makes him capable of providing comfort and help. When we're baptized by immersion, we picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as seen in Romans chapter 6, verses 1-14. through 14. So he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and then thirdly, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul was happy to suffer for Christ just as Christ had suffered for him. And then finally he says being made conformable unto his death. Paul was ready to suffer death just as Christ did. Speaking of his death in verse 10, Paul says in verse 11, If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. The Greek uh, word for attain there is katantao, which may also be translated arrive. It's a Greek aorist subjunctive and should be understood as possible soon-to-come eventuality of the death that we see in verse 10. In other words, if somehow I should arrive into the resurrection of the dead. He's close to a death sentence, and it could happen. That brings up another point. Is Paul finished then? I mean, is he throwing in the towel, so to speak? No. He emphasized in verses 12 and 13 that he's still in the race. He uses a little bit of athletic talk here to make his point. He hasn't attained, as in received the prize yet, nor is he portraying himself as the finished product of Christ when he says already perfect or complete. He continues to pursue the same mission of Christ. Therefore, he doesn't consider himself to be finished, verse 13. But he does know that past accomplishments are of no benefit, and he's reaching forth. The Greek word epictinomai, 
means to stretch one's muscles. That's toward a goal, which he refers to in verse 14, as the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So here's what Paul means to convey. He's working hard, giving his all, to reach his ministry goals. These goals were set before him by Jesus himself. In chapter 3, verses 15 to 21, Paul encourages to stick to the plan. Verse 15, Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded, that if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, and who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Now we saw in the preceding verse that Paul's eyes were fixed on a goal, and he wouldn't be distracted. Then the challenge is found in verse 15. Let's all rise to this level of commitment with Paul. If you're thinking otherwise, a spirit-led believer will see it. Now, there's some more lifestyle verses regarding Christian maturity in verses 16 and 17. Don't get hung up on that word perfect in verse 15. The Greek word teleos literally means mature, and in this case, it's speaking of spiritual maturity. Paul admonishes them to live consistently and according to established rules of godliness. Those who refuse to do so are, as Paul describes them, the enemies of the cross of Christ. He describes them as unregenerate in verse 18, listing their unregenerate attributes in verse 19. And why? Well, because in verse 19, Paul tells us that our real citizenship is not here, but it's really in heaven. That's where our loyalties lie. Perhaps verse 18 is worth giving some special attention here. It says, For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, understand what Paul's saying here. Those who don't preach salvation by grace alone and those who don't preach committed Christian living are, as he describes them, the enemies of the cross. Paul was not a very good ecumenicist, was he? On the other hand, our conversation, verse 20, is in heaven. The Greek word for conversation there is polytuma, which means citizenship. To believers, that's home. We're just working here and looking for Jesus to receive us, which is the rapture. At that point, he'll transform our bodies into glorified bodies. We see that in verse 21. He'll do that with the same power with which he subdued everything else. Now to chapter 4. Therefore, my brethren dearly beloved and long for, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech you, Odeus, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. 
And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. We saw some high-level living in chapter 3. Did Paul make the victorious living of chapter 3 seem a little too easy? Well, how does the believer keep a positive outlook of personal spiritual victory? Well, that's our subject at the beginning of chapter 4. In verse 1, Paul tells them to stand fast or stand firm in the Lord. Adverse circumstances can get you down, as perhaps had happened between the two women of verse 2. We don't have additional information on that situation. He solicits some third-party assistance for the remedy in verse 3. Now, we come to some of my favorite verses here in counseling those who are distraught. Verses 4 and 5 tell us to stay in the state of rejoicing. Displaying our moderation means gentleness. Well, how's that accomplished? Well, here it is in verses 6 through 8. Don't worry. Pray instead. God's peace that passes all understanding will prevail in you. But wait, there's more. Control your thought life. That's in verse 8. You know, garbage in, garbage out. Instead, fill your minds with virtuous thoughts. So, here are the action items for believers, especially the distraught in verses 4 through 8. First of all, we see in verse 4, stay in a state of rejoicing. That's also seen, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Secondly, display your Holy Spirit-empowered gentleness in verse 5, manifested, by the way, as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Thirdly, pray about everything and then experience the peace of God as a result in verses 6 and 7. If you'd like uh, a more effective prayer life, if you'd like to know more about effective prayer, look at Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, and read the notes there. The peace of God, by the way, comes as a result of having committed everything to God in prayer. And finally, in verse 8, force yourself to think on virtuous things. When you dwell on troubling thoughts... It's difficult to acquire victory over your circumstances. Now, this is God's therapy, by the way. Try it, and I think you'll see that it works. And then in verses 10 through 13, Paul says, I don't let a little thing like prison get me down, verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, and now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Well, here it is. Life ain't fair. Well, that's what they say in the South. But you don't hear Paul complaining even though he's in prison while he's writing this very letter. So what does the guy say when he's in prison? Well, look at verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want. For I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. What? Content in prison? I know folks who get cranky if they have to share a bathroom. 
Maybe we need to adjust our expectations. Paul lays his whole dependence on Christ in verse 13 when he says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And then in verses 14 to 23, we have Paul's typical goodbye stuff. Verse 14, Notwithstanding ye have well done that ye did communicate with my afflictions. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all, and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. As I mentioned, this is a typical conclusion, but it's a little special. He commends these folks for being there for him with support physically and spiritually and financially. The church at Philippi was founded in 50 A.D. in the course of Paul's second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16. Philippi itself was located in Macedonia. Apparently, these Philippians were the only church to contribute to his ministry following his second missionary journey. Paul's next stop after Philippi was the church of Thessalonica, still on his second missionary journey. Apparently, the Philippians sent funds to him there also. Epaphroditus had been the courier for these funds. Now, what about folks who share their resources as the Philippians had done? Verse 19 declares to them, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Generosity toward the ministry ensures that givers' needs will always be met. Paul concludes by extending his oft-used salutation on behalf of those who were with him. He even mentions Caesar's household. We don't really know to whom he's referring here, probably not relatives of Nero himself. He could be referring to the Roman guard or perhaps the servants of Caesar. And that brings us to the end of the book of Philippians. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walter.